Let me give you a few more details of my personal story just in, you know, as a way of um, catching you up on the kind of way we've seen this mission's responsibility played out practically and to encourage you too with the kind of work that the Lord is doing in the world. Because there, we, we do see evidence that God is at work to accomplish that which we described earlier. You know, we're talking, talking with somebody in the break, just this idea of those language identities that God is at work to redeem to himself. So I, I told you that my wife and I, Michelle, and our four children, two of whom were born overseas, one born in uh, Australia when we were in Papua New Guinea, our, and then our um, other son born in Venezuela. And we've had the privilege of working with unreached language groups for many years. In fact, I mentioned to you that I grew up overseas, so I had the even the indignity of early prayer cards that, for some reason, they printed as Mickey, which, you know, I mean, what in the world is going on, right? So I've never been Mickey, but that was me as a little kid. Uh, when we first went to Venezuela, my, my mom and dad with, with the two of us, youngest uh, or the oldest, and that actually is my mom who died there. We worked in Venezuela and Brazil, and the Yanomamu people don't recognize the border as such, right? They don't know anything about the border in the middle of the Amazon. And I can remember the opportunities that I had personally of seeing my parents do this hard and diligent work of learning that local culture and language. And we had the privilege of spending a lot of time with local people because we were, as kids, you're alongside local people. We did go to that boarding school that I mentioned, but we would be at a home in the local communities a lot. And, you know, when, when you're in the Amazon basin, everything's unique, right? So we had, my son gives me a hard time because I haven't gotten him a dog yet, but we had like pet ocelots, right? These, they're, it's this miniature tiger um, that gets about this size right here. Um, they're a little, little wild and they do kill your chickens. So you have to be careful with that situation. Not everybody appreciates that, the killing of chickens. Um, when you're not planning to eat all one dozen of them and they kill the whole flock in one fell swoop in the night. Uh, but we, you know, we hunted a lot of animals in the Amazon. If I, I went to the, the Dallas World Aquarium with my brother-in-law, they have this Amazon exhibit there and it, a lot of live animals in there. Uh, you know, everything from a sloth to every which howler monkey, spider monkeys, uh, capuchin monkeys and every which thing. And so we're walking around in there and he's like, hey, you know, like, have you seen a lot of these in the Amazon? And I'm like, yeah, I've seen them. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, we've hunted and eaten every single animal in this place. Not only have I seen them, but I can tell you what most of them taste like. But it was, it's just the nature of life there for the Yanomami people. They eat everything, you know? I mean, from the Orinoco River crocodile to the big fish. So in the Orinoco River there, a tributary of the Amazon, the biggest catfish we ever caught was six foot, two inches long, weighed over 200 pounds. That'll feed your community, right? It's a little bigger than the one in your pond out back. And I showed you, of course, the picture of the of the snakes. Um, but I, it was it was a unique privilege for me as a young person to be in an environment where I was being regularly exposed to the view of the world from the, the perspective of the local people, the insiders. You know, most of the time you're going across cultural boundaries and you're 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 the outsider coming in. But because my parents had worked there since the time I was young, it was a, it was a privilege for me to grow up with a perspective of the insiders and, and it was a unique sense of responsibility. I remember as a young person, one of the most striking memories that, that catches my attention after my mom died and we, we went to Brazil after that, my dad married again. And um, we're working in Brazil and, a, and one of our friends, a girl who is, who was not a believer yet 
was climbing a tree when she was pregnant. I know, like, what kind of an idea is that, right? She fell and she died. She was only 18 or 19 years old. And I, I remember standing there because the Yanomamu burn bodies. So they cremate bodies. And I remember standing there as an 11th grade kid in that funeral service where they, they've constructed this funeral pyre out of firewood. They've, they've, they've lit the body and the funeral pyre on fire. The whole community is standing around. Everyone's wailing. No one has any hope. And the smell of a burning body is, is, a, is a really unmistakable and unforgettable experience. Um, and I, I remember standing there in the smoke of that burning body, because what the Yanomami would do is they'll burn the bodies, and then they take the bones, and they crush the bones up. And the family members drink the bones in a ceremony to remember their responsibility to take revenge for that death. Because they don't believe any death is caused by anything except for spiritual intent. So, and I, I'm not exaggerating. So if a person dies from malaria or falls from a tree, they think there's an individual somewhere that helped cause that death by casting a spell, committing some act of sorcery or witchcraft. So they have to determine who's responsible for that death and they have to go take retribution by killing someone. Well, so just the reality of life there and having been a kid who experienced that and thinking, we saw, we saw death regularly around us, people dying from snake bites and malaria and accidents and warfare and spearing and bows and every other kind of thing. And so th that it gives you this sort of sober sense, at least it did for me, of responsibility. Like if I'm not willing to invest in reaching people who are in this condition, given what God has made clear to me, the light level and effect that I had, then who's going to do that? And so I, I remember in college trying to sum up those kinds of decisions. I was a linguistics major in college. And my wife and I, Michelle, uh, met in graduate school in linguistics. I think I mentioned that. We returned to Venezuela ourselves. We worked with that group of people called the Yanama, who worked there in that same southern area of the border, that small dot that just showed up that you probably can't see. We worked with another family. And we, we, we spent our time in the early days surveying those Yanomamu communities out there. So we, we flew over this area of jungle and we identified from the airplane uh, those, those spots where the people were living. You could see the roofs of the houses uh, from the air as, as little community spots, kind of holes in the jungle, if you will. And then we landed an airplane at an interior airstrip and we walked into all those coordinate locations and um i remember the the when we first challenged some of the leaders from the churches where my dad had planted churches to come with us the yanama were these people they actually i'll mention this tomorrow but they called they called them a disparaging name because they were very known for being very violent and the the leaders from the churches where my dad was they, they spoke a related language it wasn't the same language it was related and um they said we, they, they said, hey, listen, like if we go out there, they're going to kill us. They, they, these are unfriendly people. These are hostile people. And, and finally, we got a couple of the guys to commit to going with us. And so we'd walk up to these locations of their communities. And uh, the Yanomamu tend to li live in this kind of circle the wagon style in most of their communities. Sometimes that they call it a shabono, that whole set of houses will be one 
enclosed circle where there are only a couple of entrance points from the outside because they're you you get you get the picture like they're concerned about being attacked so they've created this circle it up kind of uh, effect of community life and just to be faced again with the reality that they, they use bows and arrows there their arrows the, that man's actually holding a bow with arrows their arrows are usually five to six feet long that they they both hunt with and they and they also fight with and to see the way in which again their lives are lived out in the face of this belief in a spirit world at work in the world around them that they have to manage manipulate appease that they have to uh, contend with regularly, no sense of a high, a good and gracious high God. And so in the face of all that, identities get worked out and, you know, women in these societies often are not treated very well. Uh, a lot of spousal abuse, a lot of, in fact, sometimes in the warfare, the men from one of our, one of the villages will go and kill a number of men and try to actually take women as captured wives. And so there's a lot of that kind of thing. As we interacted with men in these societies, we found that there were not very many who were more than 40 years old. They didn't know their ages, but there weren't very many for, that were more than 40 because a lot of the men over that age had been speared to death, had been shot, had, been, had, been, had died. The two of the men in the picture here, the man in the foreground and another man sitting there, have both been speared to death since we were there. So just the reality of the hardship of life there, again, was impressed on me in terms of the need for the gospel and the lack of access to the gospel. If someone didn't go and learn that local language, they would not have access. And so we built houses out there out of local materials, you know, really like local materials. Because the airplane ride to get into there was three hours by that small airplane. You could only load it a certain amount. A bag of cement by the time I got it there was like a hundred bucks, you know, so I used three of them um, and the rest of the materials were all local. So we rammed walls out of local dirt walls and eventually built two small houses with our own solar systems and um, water systems that we just made ourselves. Um, our roof was made out of a, it sort of looks like a shaggy palm there. It was the only palm available in the area. Caterpillars loved it. That's not a good thing, just so you know. Like when caterpillars eat your roof, it's not good. But it happened, and we could hear it was it was actually true that we could lay awake at night and hear the caterpillars chomping on the roofs. Like this is great, you know. But we we lived there for quite a long time. Started learning the local language. Um, we're getting into relational development there, developing relationships with local people. Our son Ian was born in that same time period. And then this man showed up on the scene in Venezuela. His name is Chavez. Um, and he declared that he's going to kick all of us out of the interior. And he did that. And so that happened in that same time period in 2006 when I went looking for my mom's grave. We still felt responsible for the work of, of the church in the world. Um, it's just the, the sense of responsibility, I've not been able to shake it. You know, I, I joke and say, I gave up my opportunity to make millions a few years ago, and now I'm just doing this, you know. But um, we, we decided to move across the world to Papua New Guinea, which is just above Australia, because there are, New Guinea's a country somewhere around the size of the state of Arkansas, maybe a little bit bigger, total land area, and has more than 800 languages in the one country. One country, 800 languages, native 
So you're talking about pockets of language identities all over the country. So we worked in an, off the coast of the mainland on an island called New Britain. And we worked with a people group there that were, are called the Atta. They had some believers amongst them, but they had a significant need for additional church planning work, leadership development, discipleship, kind of like what you would think of as a church revitalization effort in some ways, additional Bible translation. So we went into that setting and built houses. And again, there, um, I can just tell you like the building codes are different, you know, so, <laughs> so I'm not, what I'm not going to say is I'm going to come build a house up the street here, but, the, but we built some houses there and by God's grace had the privilege of seeing a lot of the Atta strengthened in faith, come to faith, other churches planted. There are now 12 Atta churches there with leaders who we, we had the privilege of working alongside to see come to come to a sense of responsibility for the work. And you get to the place in cross-cultural work, a good situation to be in is to get to a place where the people locally are showing enough responsibility that it's actually not helpful for you to be present because they need to be leaders in that setting. And that's what happened. And so in 2013, we made the decision to leave the Atta context. We transitioned back to Texas but again, cross-cultural ministry, I can't, I just haven't been able to shake it. Um, and so we worked for Denton Bible Church, which is a pretty good-sized church there in Denton, Texas, as uh, Ben mentioned in the introduction. I was overseeing their missionary teams in the world. They have 10 teams that are from the church that they've trained and sent. It was, it was very good experience for me personally to be closely connected to a sending church that was so committed to sending workers into, into mission. Because that's not, it wasn't, it's not common. I know it's a big church and that's a factor and we can talk more about that. But, but um, there was still a sense of responsibility that I felt to be more directly involved with the unreached aspect of cross-cultural work. A lot of the work Denton Bible was doing was in majority language contexts, like what you think of as the big languages of the world, which is good work, but it wasn't the kind of work that I had been focused on all of my life. And so we made the decision to move to Mexico in 2018, and we spent three years as instructors, teachers in a in an equipping program there in Mexico. So it's been it's been good to see the Lord round out the perspectives and the directions of perspective for me personally of ways in which the body of Christ gets built up in the in the contributing entities to that cross cultural training programs, local churches, the actual outcomes in the field, all that. Um, and then we've also served just to close this off with global serve international it's a it's a mission organization that has teams placed in parts of the world where traditional missionary identities won't sustain you so i was talking with one of the guys who's spent time in china and china is one of those countries where if you try to live there long term on a on a tourist visa they'll they'll eventually kick you out they don't want you there so we're we're working in parts of the especially the 1040 window where um, those traditional identities don't work. So people have to develop legitimate business identities to be able to be sustained there. They have to have business visas to live there because those parts of the world, a lot of them are there. The governments and religious systems oppose the presence of missionaries. They don't want missionaries there doing religious work. And so people have to have a legitimate way to stay there. If you're going to do church planning work, you have to be there a while. And so we've developed strategies for 
placing workers um, in field settings. We had an orientation event not long ago this summer and just saw a, quite a large group of young people committing themselves to, to being involved. And it's, it's just encouraging to see more, more going, right? Um, we, we, I have a lot of conversations, Skype conversations with, with these workers. Um, and as, as that's been developing for me, I've been more and more convicted and convinced that while parachurch, and you, you know the term parachurch, while parachurch entities are important to scaffold or support work out in the field, and I mean that like entities that you may be, be familiar with, like Global Serve, or some of you may know the IMB, or other organizations, Wycliffe Bible Translators, or some of these entities that exist, while those are important, the real responsibility for equipping workers is in the hands of the local church. Now, I, I, don't, I know that sounds like the right idea maybe to you instinctively or like, yeah, okay. But the implications of that are significant. Like if the local church is really going to take responsibility for the Great Commission and to equip workers, then we have to understand the Great Commission. We have to understand the, the responsibility of training ministry qualified people. A lot of the workers who are sent out are not ministry qualified people, just the honest, honest truth. I've been talking with other cross-cultural leaders and workers and conceding amongst one another that it could well be the case that when you hear about long-term, supposed long-term workers going out, that 80 to 90% of them are not really well-equipped to go. They, they, they have a desire to go. They may have been equipped in some way to go, but they're not well-equipped to go. So at University Baptist Church there in Fayetteville, then we're, we're starting to think more carefully through how is it that we take responsibility to train workers well. So one of the big changes to my schedule this semester has been getting up every morning and teaching in a what we're calling a Bible training institute, where we're teaching through the Bible in a two-semester program there, and we're doing it early in the morning. So my life has adjusted. You, I, I get up early generally, but 4.30 is not the general get up, and now it is. So if I fall asleep any minute, it's because of that. But it's been good, because what we want is a starting point, a foundation for these potential workers to be equipped by learning the Bible, knowing what the Bible says and what it teaches, because you can't teach others the counsel of God without knowing the Bible. So you can pray with us about that, you, even as we talk more about what partnership can look like, we can think more together about that, because I think churches have to consider working together in some of those processes. They can, no church can go it alone in, in all of that responsibility, okay? So that's the quick frame of reference that I just took you running through. Um, suffice it to say that all of that has continued to put me in a position as now an aging man, believe it or not, an old man, I say, to some people, that I, I still feel responsible to be investing in these ways. I, I just can't, I can't escape a sense of responsibility. I feel like I know too much, and I don't mean that in a prideful way. I mean, I've seen too much in the world to not feel responsible. And I, I try to help other people like yourselves, even if you didn't grow up in these contexts, I haven't heard anybody say they have, but I try to help other people like yourselves be more aware of that global responsibility we're all connected to, and for us to think strategically together as the church about how we should be involved in that. If you ask the average Christian in the world, then these slides are hard to see, but you'll have to take 
take it for granted with me that there's something on that screen besides just something that sort of looks like a pie. If you ask the average Christian in the world if they know what the Great Commission is, and I think this was conducted in the United States, um, 50% of people in churches, have they, they say they have no idea. They have never heard of it. Now, that, that feels staggering to me personally for obvious reasons. I hope it's a little staggering to you, right? And then another third say, yeah, I've heard of the Great Commission, but I don't really remember exactly what, it, what it's about. And then somewhere in there, there's about a third of people who have a fairly clear sense of the Great Commission. And friends, that's the, 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 the discipling responsibility of Christians in the church points us into the Great Commission. Right. So even the the localized priorities of outreach and ministry are are part of that process of the Great Commission going from here to there. So let's not underestimate the importance of that. There, there actually, if I asked you, and we're going to move rather quickly, so I'm not going to ask you, but if I asked you, most of you would probably point to Matthew chapter 28. If I said, What is the Great Commission and where is it in the Bible? Most of you would probably point to Matthew chapter 28, 16, or 18 to 20, right? That's most of you would say that. Can you read, can you read that from, can you read that from there? That, those words? <laughs> Not easily? Okay, just, uh, it's just my, it's just so I know how much I need to tell you that's, you have, you have to know that's on the screen. Okay, so Matthew 28, 19, 20, or 16 and 20 is the one that we know of, but just briefly and quickly, I want to take you through the five passages that all represent the Great Commission. They all represent similar and some differences in theme about the Great Commission because they point us forward toward the um, fulfillment of that commission in the work of the church that we'll talk about tomorrow. Okay, and I'm not, we're not going to take a lot of time, so we're not going to be here till. 9.30 or something, don't worry. But I just, wanna, I just want you to be aware that there are five passages in the New Testament, in the book, in the Gospels and Acts, that are great commission texts. And it'd be good for you to know that because they each have unique emphases. So Matthew chapter 28, 16 to 20 is one of them. That's common. We'll look at that in a second. There's also um, Mark chapter 16, 14 to 16. For those of you who are Bible scholars, you realize that um, there's some discussion about the end of the book of Mark, but for, let's, just, let's just stick with the fact that it's there right now, and it's a great commission text, okay? Let's stick with that. There's another text earlier in the book of Mark that we could go to, but let's stick with this one. So Mark chapter 16, 14 to 16. Luke 24, 44 to 49 also is a great commission text, a very clear, and these are all statements from Jesus himself about the intent of his disciples doing his work in the world. That's what these are. They're commissioning statements from Christ. Okay, and we also have John chapter 20, verses 19 to 21, which is another good commissioning text. Um, and then finally, and I'm sure you, you remember, Acts 1.8, which is another of those significant texts that follows up on Luke. And you know, you probably know, or maybe you don't, that Luke the, the physician wrote both Luke and Acts. So he ends the book of Luke with a commission, and he picks up the book of Acts with the reminder of that commission. And so that's those are the five texts that I just want to very briefly mention to you. 
and, um, and just refresh the frame for us that in the era of the church, okay, so we've, we've run like sprinters through the Old Testament, and we've seen that God intends for his glory to be made known to the ends of the earth. Now that the vehicle of the church is being established as that, and I'll just use the word that some people don't like, as the institution that God established, as the entity God established to do that work on his behalf. And so these are the texts that help frame that for us. So let's just start in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, if you want to jump there with me. And we're going to read these and move, but it's, it's helpful for you to have your Bible in your hand, right? It's a good thing if you have it either electronically or physically, there are Bibles there in the seat backs. Um, so Acts chapter 1, 3, this is Luke starting to tell um, Theophilus about the work of the church, the work of the Holy Spirit on behalf of the church, mostly. And he says there in verse 3, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, talking about Jesus, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, that's important because when we look at these great commission texts, we have five of them. And those words, again, that you can't read, tell us that they occur in five different places. So we we tend to think that Jesus gave a commission, like the Matthew 28 commission, and it's just recorded five times, but it happened all at once in one place. The, the, The settings for these five commissions would seem to indicate, or would indicate, take the seam out, they would indicate that Jesus was reiterating this commission multiple times in multiple locations to groups of disciples over the 40 days that he appeared to, to them. That, you guys are smart enough to figure out why that's important, because it's, it's a theme that's recurring in the final words of Christ to his disciples that underscores the importance of them being involved in that work. So he doesn't want them to miss the point. Amongst all the things that Jesus, how many things, how many clear texts do we have that share with us the words of Christ himself in the 40 days that he appeared, as the verses say, uh, alive to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. How many texts do we have that record all that he could have said in 40 days? I mean, I've only been talking for two hours and I've said enough, right? Like let alone 40 days, you couldn't handle that. I'm just telling you that Jesus, these great commission texts are the core of what we have recorded that Jesus left with us. So let's not overlook or miss that fact that Jesus wanted us to have access to these statements. And because we've looked at the Old Testament, we should know that that's not an accident in terms of the purposes of God. We see language in all of these statements that make it clear that God's purpose hasn't changed, and that he's still intent on making himself known to the ends of the earth. So let's read them, and I'll make just a few comments about each one, I promise, okay? So let's read them, because I think it's helpful for you to be reminded of what they say, and especially what they say all together. So let's start in Matthew chapter 28. If I had a microphone, I may have you guys read, but I'm not going to. I'm going to read them for you, okay? So let's read, starting in Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses, we're going to read 16 to 20, and just make a few quick observations uh, for each one um, as we move forward, okay? So Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, 
they say this, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which, to which Jesus had directed them. So this is that mountain setting in Galilee. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That's, I, I find that helpful because that's the reality of human existence. Even though we know the resurrected Christ, we still are at times doubtful people, are we not? So some doubted, it says, and then Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. A lot has been talked about, just so you guys know, of the phrase of all nations. In Greek, that's the phrase panta ta ethne. And that's not a phrase that references political identities. That's a phrase in the Greek when you read to be a little bit complicated with you, there was a significant translation of the Hebrew Bible that was made in Greek in about 250 BC, 250 years before Jesus. The reason was because Alexander the Great, who was a Greek, had conquered the world, the known world, and the Hebrews had learned Greek, and they wanted to have access to their own scriptures, but they didn't still speak Hebrew. And so a group of 70 scholars translated the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, into Greek, such that they would have access to that translation. That, that translation is called the Septuagint. So you've probably heard of it. It's, it's often represented as LXX, because the, the letter L in Latin is, is 50, 10, 10, 70 together, right? LXX, 70. So those were the 70 scholars. My point is this that the concept of ethne or ethnicities that was translated by those scholars into Greek is the same recurring concept that appears here as those ethnic identities, those language identities of the world. And we're going to talk more about that tomorrow, but the claim here being made is that Jesus has received all authority for his disciples to go and make disciples. And the primary command here is to go and make disciples. In fact, in the Greek, the the command is stated, while going, make disciples. And you make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. So the primary command is a command about discipling the nations. That's the command here. Teaching them, he says, to observe all that I've commanded you. And he says, I am, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus present in his church to do the discipling work that he commands or mandates for them to do. And the primary thrust or focus is for the nations, just to be clear. That's the thrust of the Great Commission. It's not some other thing. It's for the nations. It's for the, what I would say are the language identities of the world. So that's one, okay? And we may return just briefly to that in a minute because I want to summarize these for you. Mark 16 Again, interesting that says, um, it starts by saying that he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart. Often the case, right? As we've said, often the case, because it says here that afterward he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at table. This is verse 14. And he rebuked them for their unbelief, their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So he had, he had told them he was going to rise, and, and they had a hard time believing that would be true. I mean, most of us would as well. Not many people we know have risen from the dead. But Jesus was a risen person who appeared in their midst, 
and showed them that he had risen. And he said to them, this is verse 15, go into all the world. He doesn't say, just stay in your neighborhood. Go into all the world, he says, and preach the gospel to the whole creation. When he says the whole creation, he's talking about the whole inhabited earth. He's talking about God's glory extended to the ends of the earth. He's talking about the original commission that his people are to be responsible for. And so that's the second one there. Again, just a a good reminder of the extent of the commission. Luke chapter 24, verses uh, 44 to 49. In these last words of Jesus here. Luke chapter 24, 44 to 49. A different setting again. In this setting, Jesus is with his disciples as he says, it says they were reclining at a table and eating, right? Um, and I think that's what it says. So where is this? Where am I here? Yeah, he, and at least they were in some place where they were together eating a meal, at least that. And then he said to them in verse 40, 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he's describing the continuity of the gospel fulfilled throughout the, from the Old Testament, throughout and in every aspect of the Old Testament in him. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, And we have the same phrase to all nations. Again, beginning in Jerusalem, he says, and again, in the Bible, that national or ethnic concept is connected. And we'll see this tomorrow in the the mind of Paul and the disciples back to um, the table of nations. In fact, many scholars think that when Jesus first sent 70 or 72 disciples out on a mission, that the number chosen was no accident. Many scholars would say that the number chosen has a direct corollary to the 70 or 72 nations in the table of nations. That Jesus was already referencing the future work that he would be commissioning his disciples to do to make sure that they prioritized that ends of earth kind of ministry. Okay? So that's Luke 24. And my primary goal for you is to see the connection points briefly and to for you each to realize there are five ways in which this is all reiterated, okay? Because I know our time is short. So, so I just, I'm just running through these so, such that you, you're seeing that. John chapter 20, verses 19 to 21. John 20, 19 to 21. Here we are. This this was taking place inside some sort of a house because it says on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Again, you know, you think about the need oftentimes for us to be established in peace uh, as we're commissioned to do the work that Christ calls us to. And it says there in verse 20, when he had said this, He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. 
Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus making a clear statement of the the continuity or the continuation of sentness, that in the same way that he himself was sent, so he's sending his disciples out into the world in in a commissioning. And then finally, Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 says um, another familiar text. This is this is in the end of Jesus' resurrection appearances, um, and he's, he's speaking to the disciples just before his, own, his ascension into heaven. And so they came together and asked him, all right, Lord, now that you're raised, it says there in verse 6, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Wouldn't that have been more or less convenient, Right to solve the problem right then and there. Sometimes we wish they had, right? But they didn't. And so he said to them, in fact, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for us to know. But in the meantime, right, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, that Pentecost event that they were to wait for, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, I just want to say that when we read this verse, here's the way I often hear it applied. And I don't think Paul understood it this way either. We'll see that in Romans 15 tomorrow. But here's the way we often see it applied. We, we, we're responsible for Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. I'm just, I'm just telling you there was only one Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't speaking of Jerusalem figuratively. In other words, he wasn't saying, disciples, be faithful in your Jerusalem and your Judea and your Samaria and your ends of the earth. I'm just telling you, we don't have a Jerusalem. Like there's one Jerusalem, it's over there on a little piece of land, the, uh, just about opposite of us on the other side of the world. There's one Judea, it's over there. There's one Samaria, it's over there. But the ends of the earth are in the hands of all of us. So the reason I'm saying that is because I, I hear, you guys get the drift, some of you do. I, I hear Christians say, well, we need to be faithful in our Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. No, actually, we don't, because that's not what the commission is about. We need to be faithful in our local environment because we're faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is true. But let's not confuse the issue. Jesus was talking to his disciples standing in Jerusalem about their need to start reaching Jerusalem so they could get to the ends of the earth. That's what he was talking to them about. So just to be clear, like let's be careful about the ways we represent what that means because it can be convenient for us to see then Jesus commissioning us to stay in Jerusalem. And he's not, okay? I'm not saying everybody has to go to the ends of the earth. That's not my point. So don't throw stones at me. I don't see any around here anyway. But you might throw a hard Bible and that could hurt, right? Or a water bottle or something. My point is, though, that it's the responsibility, the outward responsibility. Jerusalem had churches established in it. And so disciples moved to Judea and they moved to Samaria. And then Paul himself focused on ends of the earth ministry because he felt responsible for fulfilling this statement of commission. You with me there? Okay. So our time's running. So I just want to give you a definition of the commission found 
as a synopsis, a summary statement from these verses, and then I'm going to stop talking, okay? Because I have other slides with words on them, but what, what will that serve you right now at 7.50 or whatever time it is? Okay, so let me just give you this definition that's a summary statement of, of the verses that we've read here. So in the Gospel of John, we have the statement that there's a Trinitarian Godhead, and that, that's not to be theologically complica complicated, but we see representation in that statement in John of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's a Trinitarian Godhead that's sending out self-giving love. As the Father has sent me, Christ says, so send I you, right? So there's a Trinitarian Godhead. Mission originates with God. Mission originates with God's intent to send his self-giving person into the world, and he designated the, the person of Christ specifically as the initial and original and final sacrifice for sin, such that we then could be goers who are sent by that same Trinitarian God, because we're the emissaries who are sent ones. That's what John's telling us there. We're the ones sent on behalf of Christ and God, the Holy Spirit, to go into the world to do that work, because we're commissioned in the book of Matthew, so I'm organizing these in a different order, but you get the point, we're commissioned in the book of Matthew that our primary responsibility is to go make disciples of Jesus in going, teaching, and baptizing. That's the way that we do that. And Jesus doesn't say, teach them a few things and then you're good. He says, teach them all that I've commanded. That's what he says. So the book of John, the sending, the book of Matthew, the commissioning to make disciples, in the book of Mark, to the ends of the earth, the, the, the whole world, we see that represented in multiple places so that all peoples everywhere can experience the covenant privilege of unity with God. God's covenant that he had made in the first place with Abraham, with Adam and Eve, with Noah, so that his name would be displayed to the ends of the earth. That's uh, the book of Mark there that I'm representing in that statement. And in the book of Luke, we have that clear gospel message represented. That Jesus says that it's my death, burial, and resurrection is the redemptive solution to sin's devastation. That's the, that's the solution. So that's the book of Luke represented. And one, two, three, four, five. And Acts is in there somewhere. I don't know what happened to it, but my point, you, you guys get the point, right? There's a, there's a clear statement of definition that includes sent emissaries who are commissioned to make disciples for all peoples everywhere to hear about the, the message of salvation available through the gospel. And we're the ones who are instructed to do that kind of work, okay? So I, I, I want that to be clear for you as we approach tomorrow, because what we see is the Apostle Paul just continuing a responsibility to take up that ministry that he has felt the delegated um, message from through Christ. Jesus has given that message to him. And, and as I said, what we're going to see tomorrow in Romans 15 is Paul is not focused on his Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. He's focused on that message going to the ends of the earth. Um, Let's stop there for tonight, okay? Because I know the hour, and we'll, we'll reconvene tomorrow. If you guys do have questions, you can ask questions 
you, I, so you've heard some of the stories that we've told. You can ask questions about people groups, about languages and cultures, about some of the specific situations that, that we've dealt with, um, and whatever you'd like to. You can challenge me in my definition of missions. Please don't yell at me too loudly. But other than that, I'm, I'm good. No, I'm just kidding. But let's pray together and um, we'll, we'll close. Sound good? Let's pray together. Father, um, again, we're thankful for the commission that you've given to us. I hope, we, I hope that that stirs our hearts. I, I trust it does. I trust that that, that motivates us as, as your children to find ways to connect to unreached ministries, the, the, the ministries to people who have not yet had opportunity to, to experience in their own languages and cultures the, the message of the gospel that we would take that commission seriously, that we'd be people who would be moving in some way, whether going ourselves or whether helping send others, whether supporting others, praying for others, praying for peoples, Father, that we'd be people who would connect to these kinds of ministries uh, as you move us forward in our lives, as, as your disciples, because we want to make disciples and be faithful in that work. We pray that. We pray for safety for any who might be driving home tonight for any distance at all. And just thank you for the privilege of being together here in Jesus name. Amen.